So we are towards the end of Perak Hamishi, where it says, "Ukshiasim adam kavanato zeinyan yevatel mipulotav v'yachsam imamaro abemod." So he was saying that uh, when you have a goal, when you are uh, directing your activities towards a particular objective, so you end up trimming your the number of activities that you do. So you're going to do less. Uh, you're going to subtract a lot from your repertoire of activities and from your speech, because he was saying how the speech of a person should only be either instrumental to some mitzvah or uh, uh, some either some practical matter or some mitzvah or some area of chokhmah. Uh, otherwise, the, the, the speech is, is, is not necessary or is counterproductive and so on. Um, and uh, right, even in the area of learning, what you're going to learn, right? So not every activity that may appear to be intellectual or may appear to be uh, a use of the intellect is necessarily what's beneficial to you. If your goal is to come to Yediyat Hashem, not every subject is going to have equal weight, equal footing. Uh, some subjects might be a complete waste of time. Some might be uh, only tangentially related and therefore limited. Um, you want to go into to them only to a limited extent and so on. Right? Well, before he did, he mentioned, uh, he mentioned, you know, for example, not to learn too much math. You know, because that's an area where math is, is useful for, um, math is useful for science, but only up to a certain extent. When it becomes an end in itself, it just becomes kind of an abstract uh, inquiry that is disconnected from anything in the real created world. Again, not that I find any uh, point of view on this. Argument could be made that anything, even math, could could lawyer it, how uh, general equations and uh, logical deductions that are associated with math, even geometry. He mentions geometry too. Right. Yeah. As, as one of those uh, almost like pointless areas of doesn't, doesn't enable the Well, he thinks up to a certain extent it's beneficial because it trains your mind to think in a rational way. It trains you in, in understanding how to, you know, proofs and... Uh, and uh, rational thought and methodical thinking, I think that's all true about mathematics. It also trains people to think in a more abstract way, um, which is another benefit. But um, if it becomes an end in itself, so in the end you're going to be reflecting on objects that are pure abstractions. And the thing about mathematics that, um, and this was a big argument between Plato and Aristotle, actually, which of course the Rambam is going to lean in the Aristotelian direction, is that Plato thought that mathematics was the greatest science because it's the most abstract and it's the most pure. Because Plato thought that the material world is the biggest obstacle to coming to real perfection. And therefore, the more you move your mind away from any objects that are related to the material world, the better you are because you're more spiritual, so to speak, you could say. You're more intellectual, right? 
The only thing is basically that, like you know, Aristotle's chidush, you could say, is that ideas are found in the material world. They're just found embedded in the material world, or as we would call them, like the laws of nature, for example, manifested in or ordering the material world, and the mind abstracts those ideas from the material world. What happens in mathematics is you have certain ideas, certain phenomena in the physical world, or certain um, building blocks of the way we think in our minds, and we just extrapolate and extrapolate and extrapolate from those building blocks um, to up to the point that you could have a 10-page long proof or a 10-page long formula that really was just derived from making one connection to another in your mind of different self-evident principles or self-evident building blocks of thought. And the formula is 100% true, but all you did was really just derive, really just unravel uh, you know, or unpack ideas that were already in your mind. So the problem with the, with um, math, with mathematics, and I, I, I'm, I have nothing again, I'm not trying to say math is not good, it is good, but it's, um, is that what it focuses on is two things. It focuses just on logical method of thoughts in and of itself, or it focuses on, um, the feature features of things that are not their essential feature, meaning quantity um, and dimension, which are never actually the essence of a thing. So meaning to understand how space and you might come upon a scientific insight from a mathematical problem sometimes but a scientific insight will be into the nature of the thing, not into the mathematics of the thing. The mathematics of the thing will describe, will describe the, um, the mechanics or, or the implications of a theory, theoretical understanding. But Einstein is not going to, it didn't discover a mathematical equation of E equals MC squared. Einstein discovered the relationship between matter and energy and space and time using his, using his reflection on the nature of those things because he basically asked questions that nobody thought were, were important or significant before, like what is space and what is time and how do they relate to each other? And once he had developed his understanding of that, so now he was able to reduce it to formulas or equations that, um, that quantified the relationship but the quantifying of the relationship is not, doesn't have any significance outside of the relationship itself. Making it an end in itself would be making um, the quantifying of something more important than what it actually is. And so that's why, the, that's why Aristotle in the beginning, uh, you know, Aristotle was the main, I guess, uh, spokesperson for the that's what the whole idea is form and matter that the Aristotelians are so into, meaning that ideas are embedded in the actual reality of things. They're not something that you take an extraneous feature like the dimension of it, and by abstracting the geometrical figures or abstracting the quantity, because it becomes an, a purely logical exercise where you don't even need the object anymore. It doesn't even matter 
what you're, what, you're, uh, what you're speaking about in mathematics. You just put X and Y. It literally doesn't matter what you're dealing with. In, when in, you start to have significance in and of themselves, you've moved, you've, you've moved away from the material reality into the relationships, uh, relationships in quantity and uh, relationships in number that are, uh, that are unrelated to, uh, uh, to the world, uh, the, the sensible uh, world. And so that's, that's where, the problem, where the problem emerges. And a lot of science has become that. A lot of science has just become equation plugging and equation, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, that was the, some, of the, some of the European philosophers in like uh, the late 19th century um, or the, yeah, uh, basically were concerned about that, what they called a crisis of science, even in the beginning of the 20th century, the, the people who are who are um, called phenomenologists, actually in philosophy, uh, were concerned about that because they said the actual experience of things is no longer being reflected upon. Everything is being reduced to describing uh, describing things that are mathematically precise. So, for instance, like Newton's physics versus Einstein's physics, because all Newton's physics does is describe in a mathematical form certain relations among things without actually defining what those things are or why that relationship should be. Like why should uh, different masses attract each other and why should it be, what does it even mean to be matter? What does it even mean to be, uh, what is that, how does that attraction and that motion from a distance even work? Um, how does gravitation, what is the gravitational force that you're actually observing? Nobody cares about that. But what we can do is describe in very, very precise mathematical terms what the attraction will be, how it will be, how the size or the mass actually of the relative, you know, of the respective bodies influences how that is going to play out. We can do all of that in very precise terms without defining even one of the entities or one of the concepts. Whereas Einstein came along and said, this is a very strange phenomenon, this whole action from a distance. And he came up with the whole idea of, you know, space time and the bending of space as a result of the mass. So all of a sudden you're introducing this idea that, hey, space and, and time and matter and energy and all these things are not as distinct as, you know, as we thought. They're actually related and you can show that they're related just by thinking about it more deeply uh, and reflecting on it in a more sophisticated way. And that's what he did. So that's a totally different way of learning science than just memorizing formulas and, uh, and that, that describe things and quantities and relations among things without ever defining what the things are. This is also part of the problem with some Ashkenazi Talmudic learning, right? Like that the, 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 the style, the brisk style of learning, which I happen to think has, has value. Um, I do actually think it has value. I was just talking about it with, uh, I think maybe with Rabbi Phillips when I met with him, I, I do think it has value. Uh, and I was giving him some examples where it can identify, just like Newton identified certain, certain true things. He made observations that were very true and very precise. He just didn't explain why it was that way. He left it that this is the way that it is. So that's what a lot of, pil, not pilpul, but a lot of the, what, what passes for like analytic, uh, Gemara study today in, uh, you know, coming from like the Lithuanian uh, 
the Lithuanian tradition or the Rabbi Salavechik or, you know, the brisk uh, tradition is defining things in a very precise way. Oh, this halacha follows the gavra. This halacha follows chefza. This one is this. This one is, uh, you know, they have all these, this terminology and all this. There are two elements here. There's this element and there's the, this shnei dinim. There's this din and there's this din. And there's a lot of times the observations are very compelling, very true. What's missing is why. Meaning what's the nature of that Halakha, that it ha- that it goes by the gavra and not by the chefza. You're right that that's that's what there's that's what the halakha is indicating. You made a good argument and a good proof that that is what the halakha is indicating. But why? What is it about the nature of this mitzvah that it follows the chefza? This mitzvah follows gavra. Why? What is it in the nature of it? Or why does it have these two dinim and two different dadim that manifest themselves? What's the underlying reason? Now, so so the so the the brisker approach can take you to uh, to a point where you observe, just like Newton takes you to a point where you observe certain very clear um, descriptive phenomena that require a deeper explanation. And uh, and in a lot of the shiurim of Rabbi Salavechik, uh, especially the longer ones, the shiurim that are lezecher Abba Muri, they come in those blue books. He does that. He kind of will take these um, uh, more, what, we, what my, actually my teacher, Rabbi Sachs, not the British one, would call it mathematical, mathematical definitions of things. And he will show what's the underlying, why is it that those features are observed in this uh, particular area of halacha by going to a deeper level of um, exploration and that's really the difference between, you know, that's like the Newton-Einstein difference, or in this case, sort of like the uh, brisker interpretation versus more what the Rambam seems to be pointing you to uh, in terms of understanding things substantively. And then those halachot emerge as, you know, fit perfectly within the framework that you now understand is, uh, you know, you understand now why they are. I think that's the, that's the key. Anyway. So, uh, but yeah, so in terms of understanding things, or even as I had mentioned, the Ramchal even talks about in the realm of halacha, that even in the realm of halacha, there are certain things that it's not in your best interest to study uh, because it's not going to bring you to, to Ava or, or, or Yirat Hashem to know. Uh, an extreme example would be like technicalities of Hilchot Gitin. Um, that's what the Chovot Alevavot talks about, which makes it funny because he's living a thousand, over a thousand years ago and had the same issue in his time, as we're talking about now, um, the, you know, but in the Ramchal talks about the same thing. Every one of the great Balei Musar, basically, or the philosophically oriented uh, Chachamim, address this issue of time wasted on uh, t- technicalities of halacha that are not lemaaseh and are not getting to the core of really the underlying, meaning to understand every mitzvah and to understand every area of halacha is good. And that's why the Rambam wrote the Mishneh Torah. But to go into pilpulim on every halacha that are not lema'aseh and also don't lend any greater depth to your understanding can be a mistake. Where to draw that line can be complicated sometimes because there are times where there's a gray area between what really could give me insight into this area of halacha and what just might be a frivolous um, exercise of uh, intellectual uh, fun, you know? 
uh, that, that becomes a, that becomes a, there, there's sometimes a gray area there. But definitely, to use an example that I've used uh, before, I had a book this big just on Shemot and Gitin and had to spell French and Russian names in, in Gitin. For sure, there's no, there's no utility to that other than to, to a Dayan who's going to be doing that. It doesn't really give you any deeper understanding of Hilchot Gitin to know about that. To know why a get requires the name, why it requires it to be spelled correctly, and uh, maybe some of the principles that are used in identifying the correct spelling might also be significant to your understanding of the topic. But knowing all those details definitely is not, unless you're a Dayan. And that's what the Ramchal says. I'm not saying that. The Ramchal says the same. Just like if you want to understand biology, to understand Maasei Hashem, that's definitely good. But it doesn't mean you have to study, the, you know, go to medical school and become a specialist in every area of surgery and every area of diagnosing di- disease because you need to understand how the, how the body works. That's going, that's going to, uh, you know, above and beyond what's necessary for, um, it's entering into a level of detail that, doesn't, that stops offering insight and just becomes technical, basically. The question is where to draw the line in that. It's not always so simple. Anyway, he's going to end up cutting down on his speech and his actions. He's not going to go looking at uh, golden uh, 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 walls or... Um, or uh, uh, have um, embroidered, fancy embroidered, uh, uh, you know, em- make uh, embroidered gold clothing. Unless he's using it in order to become healthier. Meaning, what the person is not going to go and um, for uh, go after things that are not benefiting him. So he's not going to go. He's not going to be um, concerned with. Uh, uh, sort of luxuries or going and looking at sites that are, uh, uh, you know, sites of that nature, unless he needs it. I don't know what that word actually should be. Oh, I see. He's talking about the nefesh. In other words, he might require some sightseeing of beautiful sites or some beautiful clothing in order to make him feel better. If a person has a psychological, uh, is psychologically distressed, he might, have, uh, he might need that. But otherwise, he's not going to go after those kinds of things. Um, like it says, benefit from having a beautiful uh, lodging, meaning beautiful home, beautiful wife, and uh, beautiful bed. Meaning, because what happens is that when a person, the, the soul will become weary and thought will become uh, uh, unclear when it's when the person's always exposed to things that are not um, uh, that are not beautiful that are ugly, he says. Uh, just like the body gets weary from doing heavy work until it has, you know needs some rest. Then it returns to balance. So too, the senses need some rest to look at beautiful things sometimes. 
So that we are in this passage. Like it says, when the rabbis would be uh, uh, would be uh, tired from their learning, they would t- they would joke around. They would say jokes. Now that's actually not what the Gemara that we have says, because our Gemara talks about Rava starting his shiurim with Miltad uh, It doesn't talk about um, when they were weary saying Miltad bidichuta. How and I see on the the note on the bottom it says Lefisha lo yadati mikomo. That uh, I don't know where this is. It says in the note on the bottom of mine. Because, yeah, that, I don't know of any Gemara like that either. But he brings them from Masechet Shabbat that, that uh, Rava would start out his shiurim with milta de bidichuta, which, is, um, which means that he would start out like that. But there is a Gemara that talks about when we were tired, we would go and sit uh, and we would wait for the Talmudic Chachamim to come in and we would stand up when they would come in. I remember that Gemara basically saying that they, didn't have, they, they wanted to show kavod to the Torah, but they didn't have the energy to keep learning. They needed a break um, from thinking. I remember that Rav Avadia wrote somewhere that when they would be learning Gemara for you know, hours and hours, because he was like, uh, it was an engine that didn't quit. But he said, you know, so they would get tired. He said we would flip ahead in the Gemara to where the pages were wider. Because when the pages are wider, that means like agadot instead of, uh, instead of the, the meat and potatoes stuff. And they would read the agadot for a while because they, would, they knew that it would be lighter, uh, lighter stuff. And, and they didn't have to. Uh, and it wasn't the shaklavit or yeah, isn't as intense and so on. So, you know, but the idea that, you know, you see that a lot of that we always read about, oh, um, I, I'm sure they must do it today too, but I, I never hear about it. But you always hear about these rabbis from the 20th century and before. I, I don't hear about it in modern day rabbis doing this, but they probably do. But like you would say, like Rav Moshe would go to the Catskills, you know, or they would say like, you know, these rabbis would, when they would go to Switzerland every year, you know, like you read the stories about all these gdolim that they would go to these different places for vacation. It was very common. Even the secular academics would do that. I remember when I read Freud's biography or Einstein's, you know, they would go to these like beautiful places uh, for part of the year, for the summer, um, and they would just relax their minds basically with beautiful sights and uh, enjoyable scenery. Uh, you never hear about that today, but I mean, I don't hear about it, but I, whenever you read about like Chachamim up through the 20th century, yeah, they would regularly go on these, uh, on these trips Especially in the summertime, they have pictures of like Rav Moshe sitting in the Catskills or wherever it was, you know, in the mountains, and and uh, you would see, uh, and and you would see like, um, and they would always talk about all these rabbis going away on all these um, to all these different uh, beautiful uh, scenic locations. I remember Rabbi Chait used to go to a couple. He used to go to Vermont, I think, New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Right, he would go to New Hampshire always, and they would spend like the summers there, and like some of the guys would come, and then after a while it became counterproductive because like everybody would come. They thought it was like a pilgrimage to like New Hampshire. So he didn't really have a vacation then. It became, uh, uh, but, but that's what, that was the, uh, you know, that sort of minhag of going away on a vacation to a place where their mind would be more rested, where they had more beautiful scenery is in order to psychologically help, you know, if a person lives in, in uh, a crowded area or they live in the city or they live in, you know, uh, and they come to a place that's beautiful and uh, scenic, and it really affects the psyche a lot. And uh, and that's it. So that's what he says. He says it wouldn't be going after those sights and sounds and uh, and beautiful 
uh, beautiful kinds of uh, tapestries or whatever, you know, but it certainly helps the mind to rest just like the senses need a rest. I mean, just like the body needs a rest, the senses and the psyche and the mind need a rest. Otherwise, they, 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 are, they won't be healthy. He says, when, when done this way, they're not considered bad and they're not considered hevel. Hevel meaning meaningless activity because there are different categories of activity. There's bad activities and there's uh, neutral, neutral meaningless. A guy sits and plays a guitar all day. He's not doing anything bad, but he's not doing anything good either. He's just, uh, he's, he's doing a maseh hevel. Says, for example, uh, you know, so like, uh, oh, I see now what he meant before. He said, He didn't say lepetach, meaning to go to them. I thought he meant to go, get up to go to them. Like, the language is sometimes a little bit funny. Right? He meant he's not going to, because now he says, He's talking about making the designs, right? He's not going to make designs and things like that in buildings and vessels and clothing, meaning beautiful things. Is it a benefit to have beautiful items? That's what he's talking about, right? Is, it, is there a benefit in having beautiful things? So before he said, I thought he meant, like, because it says, means to go somewhere, right? But he means, he meant actually to make things beautiful. Meaning, he's saying, is the aesthetic valuable or not? Right? Is aesthetic good? Is it, is it beneficial or not? So he's basically saying aesthetics, we, we could be a pure intellect and say that aesthetics are meaningless. Because by definition, aesthetics are just uh, whatever is on the surface. Like it doesn't have any, you know, the person who like when they show these gedolim that they live in a broken down tiny apartment in B'nai Brak or whatever with one room and the wall is white and paint is peeling and they have zero uh, and it's really like the most unattractive uh, lodging and you say, wow, what a great tzaddik. He's clearly a very great big tzaddik because he's, he lives with no, he has no interest other than Torah and he doesn't care about any aesthetics, right? So that's what he's talking about. He's saying even the person whose mind understands what's really important, they occasionally need the aesthetics to rest their mind, to, you know, give them that psychological, uh, you know, kind of a comfort that you don't get from the austere existence of one of those uh, gedolim in B'nai Brak that you see there apart. Saying this just, uh, just to I don't think so. I don't think there's such a thing as an ideal of not being human. I think he's just saying that it's human nature that a person's going to need some aesthetic uh, escape 
for the mind and the senses to, just like the body needs to rest, the mind and the senses need to rest. You know, and the way that they rest is by taking in beautiful sights and sounds that are not agitating and non-stressful, that are, you know, that have a beauty to them. And that, you know, people enjoy beautiful scenery. It refreshes them. They go, when they go on vacation, they don't go on vacation to uh, Brooklyn. It's not a... Between scenery and Scenery can, even, even though it's relaxing, uh, and there's no you know, mental activity involved, it's still, you know, within, within one or two steps lead to a, a direct appreciation of God. But, um, True. Beautiful things, having gold, well, he's not suggesting that a person should invest too much energy into it. He's talking about it as a, like the way you think of a vacation. Meaning just like a person, or he says when the Chachamim would become tired out, they would joke. They would say, even though that's not exactly what we have in our Gemarot, I guess that's what he had a different uh, manuscript. But Restful activities or experiences, that, that's easier to see. Yeah. When it comes to material things, um, it's very hard, but I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking on a, uh, on a mindset and come from heavily conditioned Anything material that's just for you and for your enjoyment, and it doesn't have any kind of, you know, utility in the realm of Avodat Hashem, it's, it's, uh, it's a negative thing. Well, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying this does have utility in, the, in Avodat Hashem. You're right about what you're saying. It's just that you're thinking maybe of utility in Avodat Hashem from, a very, from Moshe Rabbeinu's perspective or something like that, instead of from a regular person's perspective. So he's quoting here like what it says in the, you know, in the Gemara, Diran Na'avi, Shana'a is, uh, is good for Talmud Echachamim. Meaning having uh, uh, beautiful, aesthetically beautiful um, experiences uh, has a value for the psyche. The ultimate value of anything is always going to be measured by the extent to which it brings a person to the Atashem. And obviously, if a person starts making that an end in its own right, it would be just like making uh, uh, eating an end in its own right, or making uh, sexual activity an end in its own right, or any other, or ac- acquiring possessions, like we mentioned last time, I think, uh, what the Rambam's Pasuk for uh, Sefer, Sefer Kinyan. You know, whatever you acquire, it should be towards the end of acquiring chuchmah. So that's true. The question always is, what, is a question of why, not a question of what. So that's what becomes difficult for people to understand. Because we, try, we always try to translate our why into a what. And, um, and really we should be going the other way around. So that's what he's trying to tell you, to think more fluidly about it. So it's not a question of, is this action... Because because then it gets into a taboo kind of thinking. Oh, this action is a, a taboo action, or is it a or is it a segula? Like, uh, is it a is it a segula, positive segula, or is it a negative segula? Whatever you call that, ayin uh, hara, uh, whatever, right? What? Yeah, yeah. So you know they ha- yeah. So like, is it is it a positive or a negative? So uh, you want to look at it intrinsic to the action. The Rambam is saying the point of reference isn't intrinsic. It's not innate. 
the point of reference is in terms of the goal. You know, so let's say, uh, let's say David HaMelech had a lot of wives. In his framework, that, did, that so he viewed that as instrumental to his Avodat Hashem in some way. Obviously, he made an error at some uh, level. Uh, but it's not because the, the activity itself was wrong. It could be that that was what he needed psychologically. Or, you know, he also liked music and played music. He also was an, a poet. Like he, he did all these different, uh, he had all these different a- aspects to his personality and understood. That's why I think he ends up being kind of the model of the messianic model because he, he kind of integrates every different, every you know, element, every different area of human activity into a model of Avodat Hashem because everything he did was Shivit Yashem Tamid. Obviously, he sinned. Everybody does, right? There's nobody who doesn't sin. There's the list of people who don't sin in the Tanakh has no, nobody on it. So, uh, the, you know, obviously he made mistakes, but his mistakes are nothing compared to his, you know, to what he represents in terms of the positive uh, of basically a Renaissance man. He, he literally was in every area of human activity and yet all of his activity was instrumental to only one thing. Even his, his aesthetic activity, he wanted to make a house for God. His military activity, he was doing milchamot Hashem. He didn't go beyond that or below that. He was, perf- you know, what he, he, obviously he's described in Chazal as learning all night long. I mean, he talks about that in Tehilim. Obviously he loved Torah and he learned Torah. And he played music. But his goal in playing music, I would assume, being that he was David HaMelech, was to ready his psyche for Ruach HaKodesh and being able to understand, uh, you know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because that's the goal. That's like Elisha, bring me a min again. Um, so it's uh, to be, so not to look at, look for the goodness or the badness of an action in its, um, in its intrinsic properties. And I, I was actually talking about this the other day. I don't know if he's going to listen to this recording. He doesn't like recordings, but with Rabbi John. We were talking about it like a few weeks ago about um, how, uh, not, I, I don't even remember the context, but how halacha operates on purpose in a way that contradicts that kind of a thinking. Because it, it operates in terms of concept and not in terms of material things. The natural inclination would be, oh, non-kosher food bad, kosher food good. But the idea of like bitul b'shishim would be very difficult to understand or bitul berov, which is actually the deoraita, would be very difficult to understand because uh, the, the food is in there. You're ingesting the taboo food. How can you ingest the taboo food? You know? And so... That's why like the Karaim, for example, don't have an idea of, of, of bitul b'shishim or bitul at all. They also have the idea that, that kashrut works like, uh, like tum'ah, that if a non-kosher thing touches something, it also makes that other food non-kosher. So um, the idea of a taboo system where everything operates on the material level, you know, magic, good magical object or bad voodoo magical object or whatever, you know, it's like, that's, the, whereas in, if you look at the Tumah V'tarav, the Torah, if you take the most Tameh thing, a dead body, and it touches a piece of, you know, it touches building materials that have not yet been put in the form of a, of any object, just raw materials, they're, they're completely Tahor. 
But if five minutes later, if you build them into a structure, it becomes them, or build them into an, a kli, because structure can't become tamay either. But, you know, build them into a, a kli, becomes tamay. Doesn't even make any sense. Or the, the food, when it was attached to the ground, it touched the dead body, it doesn't affect it at all. You detach it and you wash the fruit, and now it touches it, and now it becomes tamay, uh, avi, uh, you know, it's a aviatuma. How does that happen? So, because obviously it's not following a system of magic. Right? But this is something that uh, non-Jewish people have trouble understanding how that's a religious system. Because it doesn't follow what they... They think that a cracker becomes their god and then they eat it. That's the level of sophistication. Of, that, that's their understanding of ritual. A priest, a priest saying certain words over a baby baptizes them. And if they don't say those exact words and pour that water on their head, they don't go into heaven. Like, I don't know if you read that article in the paper uh, like a few months ago about the priest that had been saying the formula of baptism the wrong way for 30 years or whatever it was, 20 years. And so now all of these people, their baptisms are uh, invalid because he said the wrong one pronoun incorrectly added some word. Um, and therefore, and, and he said, we baptize instead of I, and only the priest actually has the magical power to baptize. So by saying we, he basically like nullified his uh, magical power. Or I, I'm making fun of it, but you know, that's, but that, that's basically the way, that it, the way that they look at it. So when the idea, for example, I was once talking to a Catholic, like 30 years ago, I was a teenager and I was talking to a Catholic lady and telling her how, you know, in halakha we have different opinions. She's like, you can have a different opinion in religion. How is that possible? Right? So the, because it follows, it doesn't ha- we don't have this belief that there's a certain material circumstance that is blessed and magical and another one that is taboo and cursed. But we look at it in terms of the purpose and in ter- therefore you can also look at things. We look at things conceptually and not... Uh, at the sensory level. Um, these two things go together, looking at things conceptually and understanding that the good or bad of an action also is related to its purpose and not just to its material uh, surface appearance. Um, okay, so, this is a very desirable and... Uh, and um, and, and very high level. A person is only going to reach this level that they only indulge in the aesthetic enjoyments on, uh, you know, when it's instrumental to, or in the material pleasures, or only speak when it's instrumental to knowledge of God. This is a very, very high level. Actually, the Rambam says in the Marina Bukhim that this is only the level of uh, the Avot, that even the regular Nevi'im didn't have that uh, level. When you find somebody like this, he's right under the uh, level of prophecy. That the only thing that he has in his entire purpose of all his activities is knowledge of God. He's only going to do an action or say something or engage in any 
uh, anything, if it's instrumental to Yediyat Hashem, this person's right under the level of the Navi, either he's gonna, it's going to have to be something that brings him to some perfection, or that directly or indirectly. Every movement of his body, he's going to assess it. He's going to assess everything. This is exactly what the, by the way, Masiyat Isharim says in the beginning. I'm sure everybody, what? I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. This is exactly the same. Same principles. Um, actually, I might have a Misat Sharim right on this table. Oh, it's on the other end of the table, and I'm too lazy to get up. And, I, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm calculating whether it's worth it to get up or not. But um, it's, on, it's on the other side of the table. But we all know Misat Sharim. We don't have to read it inside, right? And of course, a lot of it was based on the Rambam too. This is what Hashem commands us to love God with all aspects of your soul, meaning every element of you should be directed towards that goal. So he says that's right below the Navi's level. He goes further in the Mor Nebuchim and says that... Um, that, uh, that uh, you know, th- this general idea, yes, is true of a Navi, and he says it in the Mishneh Torah too, that that's their, their whole purpose. But he says that the Avot, even when they were involved in practical things, only thought about, meaning here he's saying the choosing of the course of action is based upon what's going to bring him closer to Yediyat Hashem. In the morning of Bochim, it says, even as they were doing the action, they didn't even think about anything other than Yediyat Hashem. As they were doing the business transaction, they weren't even, it was like their body was doing one thing and their mind was in a different uh, world altogether. That, he says, only the Avot reached it and that's why only the Avot, so that's why the Avot are the Avot and we're regular people. He says, even other Nevi'im didn't reach that level. How do we know that? Because, we, because all other Nevi'im resume a regular life you know, they have a regular life that's separate from their Avodat Hashem, even though their purpose in everything they're doing is Avodat Hashem and is Yediyat Hashem, but they engage in regular activities. Um, whereas like Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov or Moshe Rabbeinu, their entire, every moment of their life is just the embodiment of Avodat Hashem, not just in terms of its purpose, but in terms of its substance. And that's, you know, that's, that's a different level. Um, he calls Shlomo Melech a Navi here, which is interesting. In all your ways, you should know God. Even do a person who does a sin. Even though a certain thing might have elements of sin involved in it. In other words, even if he's going to do something that might seem to you like, let's say, uh, going on a vacation, you'll say, well, that's just bitul Torah, that's not the thing to do, it's not, a, you know, it's a, you're, you're leaving, uh, learning, and going on a, a, a trip to uh, Switzerland, I don't know, whatever they used to do, that's, an, uh, that's a certain, tzad avirah, he's not talking about a person going and doing like uh, clubbing and doing drugs and uh, promiscuity, he's talking about somebody who's engaged in things that you could say are, to a certain extent, uh, not the highest activity, but he's doing it for the tachlit of uh, avodat Hashem, so therefore it's uh, it has a uh, it has a value. Ukvar kalelu chazal zeinyan kulo b'ktsara b'milot muatot moreh azeinyan oraash lemamot. The chachamim already included this in a short statement that in just a very very short uh, uh, pithy uh, uh, statement. Encapsulates all of it. 
to the point that when you assess how brief the words are, um, and yet with such brief words, they were able to capture such an enormous, profound idea, that books have been written about this idea and have not exhausted the idea, and yet they were able to capture it with one small sentence. You should know that it was obviously formulated with a divine power. I mean, you could see that the Chachamim had Ruach HaKodesh, so to speak, Vomram, Betzavotehim, Vechol Maasecha Yu L'Shem Shemayim. He loves that. He says, that line basically is everything I just told you. So he, he's basically saying that one line, which we sort of like almost take for granted and we don't even think of it as being such a tremendously profound line. He says that line, is basically the entire philosophy of Yahadut or the entire philosophy of Deot, that everything should be, uh, should be ordered towards Yediyat Hashem. Even something which, so to speak, has a tzad avera, meaning it's something which is, uh, 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 would seem to even be moving away. Okay, obviously we're not talking about someone doing uh, something which is a technical avera. That's, that's, that, that we don't expect the person to be in actual violation of halakha, but meaning something that seems like it's a moving away from Hashem in a certain way, but the person's doing it in order to uh, in order to uh, reach back. So we're not talking about like Shabtai Tzvi, who's like uh, literally uh, violating halachot and saying it's l'shem shamayim. Or, that's not, or uh, I need to go to the sitra achra in order to come back to the uh, path of light or some, some weird thing like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about things that would appear to be a deviation or you know, a, 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 a stepping away from the right direction. But in the mind of the person, you can't know what the reason is that they're doing that. It can be done sometimes to bring a person closer. Uh, that's why the Chazal say, or at least that's what I think the reason is why they say about, let's say, you know, David Anybody who says David sinned is making a mistake. So the idea is that we, when we look at the characters of, Chaz, of, of Tanakh, uh, even the ones who do sins, the idea is not that they, the, the, the people in Tanakh especially the good people who do a sin, or um, and then they say, no, what he really did was he messed with his uh, father's bed. What David really did was that, you know, really, but Shefa wasn't married and, you know, the whole thing. Why do they say all of that? Because they're trying to say that the chata'im of somebody like Ruven or somebody like uh, David Melech, it's not going to be a violation of the Shulchan Aruch, so to speak. He's not going to go, he's not going to just violate a basic halacha. And, and in that sort of sense, uh, be a sinner. The sin of David Melech is not going to be a halachic violation. It's going to be a violation in the area of deot. It's going to be a violation in the area of perfection, not in the area of actual technical, uh, uh, technical trespass on the halachot. That, that's, why they, that's why they're saying that. They're saying that when you read the story, if you think that the main point in the story is that David Melech violated the law of Torah, that he wouldn't be David Melech if he just violated, flagrantly violated the laws of Torah in that way. What it means is that it was a situation in which he could rationalize. He rationalized the satisfaction of his desires um, in a way that violated the principles of deot. Um, not in a way that. So that's why they say, "Oh, she was really technically divorced. She was really technically she wasn't." You know, they they come up with a way that he would have rationalized 
his um, encounter with her. Okay, oh, they, he really, Uriah was rude to him and therefore he had the right to put him on the front line because he was Morid Bamalchut, because he did this or that. He's not just going to send someone to kill them. He's going to have some reason. Now, would, you, would someone totally objective in assessing their psyche and knowing what the desires of David HaMelech and what his concerns were, would they, uh, would they agree with uh, his course of action? No. They would have said that this is really stemming from something in your psyche that you're allowing to uh, cloud your judgment. But would David HaMelech just throw, like, uh, throw Tuan Mitzvot to the wind and do whatever he wanted like a king of um, some other nation? Also no. Right? So that, that's why Chazal do these things. Or would Reuven simply go and, uh, and, and abandon himself to lust? Okay, there you have a machloket uh, in the Mepharshim, whether it is literal or not, because Reuven does seem to have some aspects of his character that are questionable. But even there, to say somebody who is like, name is on the Choshen, like, like Sephorno says about the, te- the brothers that conspired against Yosef, you know, to say someone whose name is on the Choshen and is one of the Shvatim is like a low-class person that goes and, um, and engages in the most... Uh, uh, base level uh, activities, it was hard to believe. Meaning it's not consistent with the profile of somebody who would be a member of the household of Yaakov Avinu. It makes more sense that it means that he didn't understand his place and um, he got involved in his father's sexual life because he thought that he was you know, the head of the household. And so he arrogated himself the right to, uh, to do that. And it was a violation in terms of kibbutz avayim and also a violation of a certain sexual impropriety because a person shouldn't be involved with, the, with that aspect of their uh, parent's life. So, uh, you know, so, so that, that's, you know, that type of, uh, uh, I'm just mentioning it because, you know, talking about um, understanding actions versus understanding purpose and understanding uh, that the surface action for David Amelech, what he did was adultery and murder. Because in the areas of Deot, he was, he was committing a violation in those areas. Not necessarily do you have to say that in the area of Halakha, he was committing those violations. And that's the same with all of those Chazals that try to like mitigate the Averot of certain, uh, uh, certain characters in Tanakh. It's not because they're trying to make an excuse for them. See, it's, a, that's the, it's not because they're trying to make an excuse. It's because they're trying to explain that a person at a certain level of perfection is not going to, their area of battle is no longer with following the halakha. Their area is in the inner perfection. And the inner perfection, what for you or me might not be considered a, a, a violation of, uh, of these uh, principles, for someone who's on a level of uh, of deot of uh, uh, you know of perfection, it's going to be viewed differently, and it's going to be construed differently. So even with a rationalization that's halachically acceptable, the person's um, the person's uh, deot are disordered, and therefore, like like Moshe Rabbeinu getting angry for one second, for me or you, that wouldn't be uh, an earth shattering uh, moment and ruin our entire life. Most likely, maybe it could, but but it, it's you know it depends. But but it wouldn't necessarily be that way. But for Moshe Rabbeinu, that was an enormous chilul Hashem and abdicating of his entire responsibility. And it's not even one of the tariyag mitzvot. 
but he, uh, you know, he, he failed in the area of perfection. That's more significant for Moshe Rabbeinu than uh, failing in uh, that, that he, uh, he forgot to put on tefillin that day, you know, or something like that. So the, uh, that, that's, you know, this is uh, understanding the, the, the framework of perfection of, uh, of, the great, of these great people, that even when they would do something, so to speak, in Avera, they could have, or, you know, like, uh, they would do it l'shem shemayim, means to say that, the, and obviously in the cases of David HaMelech, he wasn't doing that, that's why it was bad. But I'm saying, in, the, in general, when the, when, even when a person will do something, it seems like they're moving away, if they're a person on this level, they're doing it l'shem shemayim. And so we can't look at activities only on the surface or only in terms of construing their uh, external features. You have to know what role they're playing in the development of that individual, in their, in their, uh, in their uh, purpose in life, in their mission in life. And that goes in both directions, meaning in the case of David HaMelech, the surface action, the Chazal are saying, really would have passed muster by the Bet Din. He wouldn't have said that he did anything wrong. But it was still a total, uh, a total failure for him. On the same level, an activity that you might say looks like an abdication and a terrible thing for this tzaddik that they're doing could actually be l'shem shamayim and somehow be bringing that person um, uh, closer to God. Even though it seems like uh, he's doing bitul Torah, he's doing, uh, you know, he's, he's listening to, he's sitting and listening to music. He's watching uh, uh, a play. He went to the, uh, he went to uh, look, to, to walk around in a, uh, on vacation in a beautiful scenery without, and he's not learning Torah. What's, you know, what, he's obviously abandoning his uh, purpose. No, you don't, that, that for him, he's, he's doing it l'shem shamayim. Right, so that's the uh, that's the point of the uh, of the Rambam here, I think, and yeah, the, uh, the but he says that having a level where literally nothing escapes you and every action is measured, just like the Ramchal basically says in Sefer Shemayim, that's a very high level. It's a level to aspire to. Okay. Well, you look like you were. That was the end of the fifth day. Yeah. So I thought it was a good place to stop, no? That way we know where to start next time. We don't have to search. Did you have a comment? It looked like you were... I don't know. That was... It answered a lot of questions. That I... General questions. I've been ruminating on for, for a long time. Uh, recent conversations at home, with my wife, with guests... About the David Melech thing or something else? About the idea of the what and the why, the idea of where to draw the line in terms of things which wouldn't, on the surface, be productive in the general life's mission of Yad Hashem and growth. Like, you have to look at it this way. It's important to know what, it's important to know the entire Torah. Everything in the Mishneh Torah and in the Tanakh a person should know. Because that's all part of the core curriculum. And under, even if you're not going to be, let's say, in, in the business of uh, 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 doing a Gitin or writing Ketubot, or you're not going to be in the business of Tumah V'tawah or the Bet HaMikdash or the Korbanot because you're not a Kohen or whatever, understanding and knowing how those mitzvot are set up and formulated and why and what they what they accomplish that's part of understanding Torah. 
And a lot of times, a great insight into one of the mitzvot is buried inside one of the details. But uh, you have to always try to be making your way back to, the, to, to understanding the big picture. Not losing, it's like if you're painting a painting and you get so caught up in one corner of the painting that you forget about how that one corner is, a, is part of the whole uh, picture, so it's not going to come out right. You have to, you know, the whole, it has to fit into the, uh, to the totality of the, uh, of the picture. That's, that's, the, that's the goal. Yeah. All right, so Bezvat Hashem, I will reconvene next week. Uh, thank you. Talk to you guys soon.